Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today's episode is about what's new and what's next. Beth Kaplan, a managing director with Deloitte & Touche, is here to discuss what she calls the next normal. Later, I'll be joined by our community manager, Melanie Binder, who will tell us about HFMA's latest community call-out. But first, let's see what's going on in the news with Rich and Chad. Hello, this is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. And hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director for HFMA. Today on the Beyond the News segment, where we take a quick look at the significance of recent news developments, we'll check out the significance of a new nationwide arrangement between Cleveland Clinic and Aetna. This one offers commercial plan members access to virtual second opinion services from the Cleveland Clinic's providers. They're also creating a cardiac center of excellence program for plan sponsors nationwide. So Chad, I understand Cleveland Clinic has been building up to this for quite a while with other initiatives, right? Yeah, and you saw this last year. I mean, obviously this has been a long time coming. They have been one of the main sort of centers of excellence providers who have been partnering with large employers nationally for travel procedures. So for certain employers, for certain typically high cost procedures, you know, you would have an employee who needed, say, a spinal surgery or a joint replacement or a specific cardiac procedure that could be scheduled, depending on kind of what the arrangement was. To fly to Cleveland Clinic, they would be treated by the team at the clinic, and then they would come home and sort of be managed post, post-procedure post or post-opportunity uh, in the local market with some with some support from the team at the Cleveland Clinic. And that's just sort of a very high-level overview of it. And as through that work, what was typically being found, and this is sort of common in other center of excellence arrangements as well, is that you were seeing significant numbers of procedures that actually didn't need to be done. That, and it depends on the condition. So joints, you know, the number typically somewhere in the 20s where 20% of procedures didn't need to be done. Spines, I think it got up as high as 50%, depending on kind of where you were. And this is, again, sort of more generalized across the center of excellence models where you sort of would see avoidance of procedure because once they were treated by the care team at the clinic, they realized that either there was an issue with the diagnosis or that there was a less invasive, more conservative way to manage it. So that's kind of the part one of it. Then part two, you saw last year, Cleveland Clinic announced a partnership with a national telehealth provider to offer its specialist services to anyone across the country. And that was sort of aligned with Cleveland Clinic's goal to get to over half of their outpatient clinic visits occurring virtually. And so really that kind of lays the groundwork for this this announcement. So what limited uh, previous Cleveland Clinic national telehealth efforts that this latest uh, announcement aims to overcome? It wasn't the, the, the telehealth piece of it, it was the center of excellence model. And so if you think about it from the the model standpoint, right, you've got to have a large employer with a large number of employees who might need sort of center of excellence level care. And then you've got to have procedures above a certain threshold and cost and variability to make it worth the time to actually put somebody on a plane, fly them to Cleveland, have them evaluated by the team, or even have it done with the prospect of actually going to the clinic. Now, by offering the, the, the second opinion virtually, you kind of knock down some of those barriers to entry. So it certainly expands the model considerably, at least for, for Aetna members across the country. And amid that, that type of national expansion, what uh, effect could this have on hospitals in local markets? 
So, you know, where you've got a, a large number of individuals covered by an Aetna plan, so Aetna is either the TPA for an ERISA employer or even sort of the Aetna small group market or even some of their maybe even MA products, what you'll see potentially is higher volumes of things like joint procedures, spine procedures, where someone goes and gets a second opinion from the clinic and it becomes managed more conservatively. So you'll, you'll, you'll potentially see some demand destruction there. Um, the other piece of it is, is obviously the Cleveland Clinic has a long history of partnering on local centers of excellence with providers that are in the market. So one example in the D.C. area is the, the MedStar Cleveland Clinic Vascular Institute. So you could also imagine that in those situations where, you know, someone actually does need a vascular procedure and has a second opinion from the clinic, it wouldn't be too surprising to see an individual who gets that second opinion get sort of referred to the MedStar Center of Excellence that Cleveland Clinic has as sort of a handoff from a colleague at the clinic on a, from a virtual basis. So again, you could see some shifts in referral patterns there as well. Right. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for the insights on, the, on all of that, Chad. Appreciate it. Hey, Rich, always good talking with you. For more news on daily healthcare finance developments, check out our news page at hfma.org forward slash news. If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank. Over the last several months, the phrase new normal has become one of those overused expressions everyone seems to hate but says anyway. But Beth Kaplan, a managing director with Deloitte & Touche, has a better one, the next normal. She talked with me recently about what that means and how to get there. When we say the next normal, the reason we don't say new normal, which you'll hear often, is the next normal to me is the intermediate step. Because we don't know what the new normal really is, but it's going to be different than it was before, but it may not be what it is today, if that makes any sense. So as an example, you have everybody was home, closing the books, doing their financial reporting, board meetings, everything else is through the collaboration type of mediums like uh, that everyone's using, whether it be Teams or Zoom or Skype or WebEx, whatever. When you go to the next normal, you're saying, okay, what if we learn? What is going to stick permanently? Like, what did we prove in a week or over a course of a couple of months that, you know what, may not be bad to hang on to that new operating model? What do we want to change about that? And what do we want to really kind of go forward with? So in the case of, let's say, finance and controllership, a lot of organizations, not all health systems, were ever really working remote. Some were, some weren't, and certainly not 100%. And I think in the course of what I call the biggest experiment ever in our country, I proved to a lot of leadership and a lot of organizations that their people can actually work remote and be productive for the most part, liked it, got them off the road, helped traffic, helped air pollution, and in the case with a healthcare provider, kept people out of an environment that is highly vulnerable 
If you think of the vulnerable populations, they're sitting in our health system. So the next normal is what wasn't before, but what's the next view of that? I'm guessing this will be a constant process because once you adjust to whatever it, whatever the situation is now, you're going to be asking yourself those same questions and then you're going to adjust and start over and over again. I cannot think of anything that's ever happened in my lifetime that has forced the whole world to do one thing at the same time. You're not bucking up against other organizations doing something differently and you're competing for talent and someone saying, well, they're doing this and you're doing this, right? I think there were a lot of benefits that were achieved out of what was, and I think leaders now are trying to lead and figure out what the best thrive, if you will, looks like in the respond, recover, or thrive continuum, if you will. So I, I think everything is on the table, to be honest with you, Erica. That's both exciting and a little frightening at the same time. It is. But it, it's going to force other things to happen. You can't, you can't just say, great, let's just go. You've got to think about automation. You've got to think about efficiency. Um, in certain organizations, it was pretty clunky. You know, I, lack of a better technical term. You know, think about people in finance. They get invoices, hard copy. They're sitting on people's desks. How are they dealing with that? Why do they have manual things like that? How do they automate that further, right? It can change, second, the skill sets you may need. The more you automate, what are those additional skill sets that you need that you don't have today? So it may accelerate some automation or digital digitalization, if you will. It also brings up another interesting component. And if you have people that work remotely, or can work in a more virtual environment, do you need to have everybody local to your geography? If you need specialized skills, will this force you to say, you know what, I need a cost reporting specialist. Do I need to really procure that person locally, or does it really matter? Can they be anywhere in the country as long as they're made a part of my team, they feel like they can thrive, they can be successful, and they have a future. So those are some of the interesting questions. I probably have more questions than answers, but definitely a lot of questions I ponder a lot these days with my clients and a lot of the people I interview through the Center for Controllership. So for people who are pondering some of those questions, what's your advice for kind of starting to work out these issues as they're in that recover, they're trying to get to thrive, but they're still thinking about responding to whatever comes up as they're recovering. Um, you know, how, how do you start to, to tease those things apart? Right. That's a great question. And it's one that where my recommendation is, where our recommendation is, is I think everyone needs to, as long as you can, even for a moment, pause. And it really takes stock in what worked, what didn't, what could work better, and set a new vision of what would the six-month, year, two-year future look like. And really recast priorities based on the capital that may be available or not available because we know the healthcare system took a huge hit 
I think I read somewhere about 206 billion loss as a result of the pandemic by suppressing um, electives. So I think it's a matter of saying, what is our new vision? Where do we need to head? What can we optimize? Where can we automate? Where can we cut costs? And how can I rejigger what this new plan looked like? Because maybe the plans I had in February are no longer applicable. Priorities may be shifted. People may be saying, you know what? It's really, we don't need to invest in this anymore. Why would we? But maybe we need to move up this investment because that's going to give us a payback very quickly and it'll enable some activities to be in a much more fluid, efficient way. I have to tell you my favorite question to ask of any guest on this podcast, no matter what we're talking about, is where do you start? And a start with a pause is probably the best answer I've ever gotten to that question. I have always found that it's never the list. Everyone can make up a list. They can unpack that suitcase of a list that'll keep them till retirement, right? But it's how do you incrementally make choices to make, I call it like inchworm changes, just chip away at it. Because if people make it so overwhelming, you get nothing done. But if you make some incremental changes and you keep doing that over time and you do take that pause, then you find six months from now, you'll probably be further ahead by setting out smaller goals that everybody aligns to that at least get you some improvement. So I recommend the pause. How do you benchmark your revenue cycle performance? Many organizations measure success compared to past performance. Others leverage software to benchmark against other facilities that share the same technology. But that only paints part of the picture. What about comparing your performance to your peers? Peers that you define in custom peer groups. MapApp is the online benchmarking tool from HFMA that helps organizations compare their performance against data from more than 600 facilities. Interested in taking the next steps to identify your revenue cycle opportunities? Visit hfma.org forward slash MapApp. So from time to time here on the podcast, we like to highlight some exciting things going on at HFMA. And today, our community manager, Melanie Binder, is back to tell us about HFMA's latest community call out. Hi, Melanie. Hi. Thanks for having me on. So tell us about this community call out. What are we asking folks right now? So what we're asking for folks is to share what kind of maybe home improvement project or project that they tackled due to kind of adjusting to the new normal during the pandemic. We realize people may be at home a little bit more and they may be tackling some long overdue projects. So, you know, we'd love it if our members could share a photo or two of what they've tackled. Um, We're calling it pandemic projects in the community. And they'll have a chance to win their choice of a Home Depot or Lowe's gift card. And if for some reason you're unable to accept a gift card, we'll be happy to donate to the charity of your choice. So I have to know, Melanie, do you have any exciting pandemic projects? Yes, actually, we've probably done quite a few in our house. Uh, One was um, we had a whole box of recipes that we've just printed off over the years. And we tackled that mountain of recipes, put them in plastic sleeves, organized them by category and 
put them in a big binder and it's become much more usable. We reference it all the time. Um, one of our other projects that we've always wanted to do was start a small vegetable garden. We don't have a lot of land, but we bought a nice garden box and we've planted cucumbers and rosemary and peppers uh, and just have been kind of watching it grow. It's been a great family project. That's awesome. I know in my house, because we're all home now all the time, we have had to take our unfinished basement and make it a usable, livable, nice space rather quickly. So my husband has been working feverishly to paint it. We've been cleaning it up and trying to get it ready for homeschool for our six-year-old and uh, in a nice play area that we can also use for work. So that's been our project and it's a big one. It's probably not going to be done for a while, but yeah, we're making progress. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a great one. It sounds like a definitely a good family project that everyone can take advantage of when it's done. Yeah, and absolutely needed. So <laughs> we, we were forced into it, but it's <laughs> yep. but it's it's going okay so far. So if people want to share their pandemic project story and photos with us, where do they go to do that? When they log in to hsma.org, click on community in the top navigation bar, go to all groups, look for the open forum, feel free to join the open forum. Then you'll see the discussion posted there and then go ahead and add your contribution. We'd love to learn about the pandemic projects that our members are tackling. All right. Well, thank you so much, Melanie, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast, which you can now get on Pandora and on your Alexa-enabled device via TuneIn Live. As always, if you have any questions or ideas about what you'd like to hear, you can reach out to our team at podcast at hfma.org. Alexa, play Voices in Healthcare Finance again.